Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is the first Midnight Myth podcast episode since, and wait for it, the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl! Yeah, welcome to the era of the Eagle. The Eagles are Super Bowl champions. If you're new to the podcast... This is the podcast where we discuss historical, philosophical, and moral truths behind modern storytelling. And we are coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, home of the Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl 52 champions. Yeah. Yeah. It's been quite a week here for us at the Midnight Myth podcast. We live a stone's throw away from the link, which is the Uh, you know, the stadium where the Eagles play at home. And it has been a lot of celebration uh, throughout our entire city. And there's been a lot of hope and joy just spreading among the folks who live here and all over the streets. So whether you're an Eagles fan or not, you can understand most likely the, uh, the feeling of just total unity and community in a city when your team wins a major championship. Absolutely. And for the Eagle fans out there listening, I'm talking directly to you. It's been a long time. We've wanted a championship more so than we've wanted anything. We have friends that are Cowboys fans. We have friends that are Giants fans. And those arguments, debates, sometimes brawls, always end with, talk to me when you win your championship. We want our championship. But it got me thinking about what we do here at the Midnight Myth and our mission, which is to elevate and educate dialogue around storytelling. And it got me thinking about the story of sports. Why is it that we love it? Why do we get so impassioned around our teams and their victories and their pitfalls? And what can modern storytelling tell us about the narrative of sports? And for Philadelphia, other than the love for our teams, there's one other sports narrative that is very 
I would say, uh, resonating deep within our collective Philadelphia consciousness, if there is such a thing. And that is the story of Rocky. Now, I thought it would be fun to do a pro-pen, amazing Philadelphia extravaganza story about sports. And if I'm going to do that, rather than sit here and talk about the game, which is not what we do at the Midnight Myth, other podcasts do that, I figured the most appro- appropriate narrative to peel under the uh, the hood, if you will, would be Rocky. I think it's a, a great uh, a great story to dive into. If you come to Philadelphia as a tourist, one of the top places on your list, other than the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall, is likely the Philadelphia Art Museum with its iconic steps and the statue of Rocky from the 1976 film of the same name uh, who stands at the bottom. And you might come to Philadelphia and try to run those steps yourself because it is a symbol of endurance and it's a symbol of growth and personal redemption. And Rocky as a character is a symbol of so many of those things. I think in a way he has become more of a Philadelphia legend uh, than you know even some of the revolutionary heroes of the war and he's encapsulated so much of what we as Philadelphians feel uh, and what we think we are. And in many ways, he's an American icon. So it's going to be interesting to uh, read into Rocky tonight as a character, read into Rocky as, uh, as a narrative of redemption and as a narrative of sports, and to really try to understand why that has such a hold over us as a country. Absolutely. You know, and some even go to the Philadelphia Art Museum steps and they see the bronze statue of Rocky and they think, really? Why would you have that statue here? And hopefully by the end of this podcast, if you are a listener that happens to be thinking that, that question will be answered. So let us dive in. Enough preamble. Let's talk a little Rocky. So Rocky is the story of Rocky Balboa, a South Philadelphian um, in the 70s, a down-on-his-luck boxer who gets a sort of haphazard chance for his shot at the big time for fighting Apollo Creed. In it, Rocky loses, but he goes the distance and ends the match on his feet. And at the very end, he gets to celebrate by just shouting the name of the woman he loves over and over again, because he can't really see because his face is all mangled. And she comes and finds him and says, I love you, Rocky, and he says, I love you, the movie ends. What is it about this movie, Laurel? What do you think it it offers? Why is it so powerful? Not only in Philadelphia, it's an ongoing movie franchise that just had a recent installment in Creed. So what do you think it is about Rocky? So I'm going to go ahead and put myself on blast. Uh, I had never seen Rocky uh, until I watched it this week in preparation for the podcast. Uh, this is kind of a crazy, just, it, it never happened for me, even though I've lived in Philadelphia for about 10 years. Um, and it's a movie that, you know, people all over the world have seen and, and enjoy. Um, but I felt like I knew all the references. I knew what happened in the story. I knew a lot of the quotes and the lines and I could quote it and, and convince people that I had seen it, but I hadn't seen it and I didn't think I needed to. Um, and I was proven pretty wrong when I watched it this week in preparation for the pod. Um, what strikes me, you did the summary of the movie in about 12 seconds because this is not a complicated story. 
It is as simple as classic as it gets. Underdog gets his shot at the big time, goes for it, goes the distance, achieves an inner uh, redemption. Loses, but makes it and proves it to himself that he can do it. Uh, And there's something so disarming uh, watching it today about uh, about how simple and how classic uh, that story truly is. And I think about it, and, and I watch it today, and how optimistic the story is, how uh, sincere, how gentle, how kind uh, this character really is, despite his exterior, despite his uh, sort of gruffness, that he is truly a kind individual and someone who just wants to prove himself. That's disarming to watch today, but it must have been disarming to watch in 1976 as well. I think Rocky comes from... Uh, it comes from a, a grand tradition of classic cinema, but in some ways, in its own classicness, it's revolutionary. Absolutely. It, uh, I think it did two things for the sport narrative that are truly unique at the time that we take for granted now. The first is the training montage. Uh, to my knowledge, and if anyone knows differently, hit me up on Twitter and tell me, Rocky is the first movie that had a training montage. It's now a sort of pillar of any movie that's trying to quickly show how someone goes from a beginner to a pro, uh, like they do in um, in Team America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely it didn't invent the montage, which is a technique that's been around for a long time. But the training but montage, the specific training montage that we're looking at, has become truly iconic. And it's in every single Rocky movie. Interesting things. It's a very small part of the first movie. The first movie, the first Rocky movie, when rewatching it, it is a slow moving film. It takes its time. Rocky is a street level mob enforcer who's going out collecting for lone sharks and boxing when he can. His own boxing trainer has kicked him out. Nobody cares about him except for his pets and his socially awkward love interest in Adrian, who no one else understands. And it's really about these two kindred spirits coming together under the umbrella of this larger-than-life character, Apollo Creed, who is the top boxer in the world, who sort of plucks Rocky out of obscurity simply to put on a show. Yeah, a PR move. Right. He doesn't really care about actually fighting him, doesn't believe that he even poses a, a threat. And Rocky, realizing, I have no chance of beating him, his only goal is just to prove for once that he's not a bum. Oh, uh, but yeah, we're talking about those innovations that they, Oh yeah. The, the other montage. innovation, sorry, I got, yeah. The other in- innovation that you don't actually see too often is the underdog story where the underdog loses. Yeah. That's truly unique to Rocky and all the other Rocky movies. He wins the fight at the end. Right. But this is the one that dares to let him lose. You know, that what's the real victory that Rocky has? Is it a sports victory? No, I would argue it's a moral victory. Yeah. Um, Just to insert one other innovation that comes with this movie, um, not only the the training montage, but it's also one of the first uh, professional uses of the Steadicam. So there's a huge technological innovation going on here that's lending to the authenticity of the visuals, um, which if we look at the picture of Philadelphia that it's painting, the picture of you know, the American city that it's painting in the 70s, it underscores that underdog narrative, right? It shows us 
how hard things really are on the streets and how difficult it is to just make a buck and feed your turtles uh, and then forge a connection with another human being when everyone has forgotten about you. Nobody gives a shit about you. Uh, I think we, we are immediately on the same level as Rocky when we enter this movie. We are right there beside him on the sidewalk and we, we feel all of this with him. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think it paints a picture of Philadelphia that is uh, void of Philadelphia's glory and void of its beauty. It chooses to paint Philadelphia as its raw, real form. That there are people that huddle around trash burning to stay warm. That there are people that work the docks who are in with the loan sharks. You know, that the, just by the kindness of Rocky doesn't get his thumbs broken. You know, it shows this uh, real uh, grit of the Philadelphia narrative that is currently still part of the Philadelphia story. The Philadelphia is a gritty working class city still is that. And it, it, instead of shying away from that and just going to glory, it paints that grit picture. And that gritty reality is one of Rocky's greatest virtues that he lives in this grimy, dirty place. He does a cynical and terrible job but he himself is not cynical. What motivates him is love. And this is what's truly revolutionary about the story, right? Is that this is, this is a true optimist narrative of coming from the slums and, and making it. And Rocky himself is, is almost painfully, almost tragically optimistic, right? You, you, can't, you can't stop him. Even when he wants to hold himself back, he pushes himself further. And that's, it's strange to see these days. It's, it's almost cheesy, but it's to such a level that you, you just can't help but feel the same way Rocky does and want him to succeed more than anything. And I think this is a huge part of why uh, Stallone wanted to make this movie. Uh, it's easy to look back on Rocky today and see it as this sort of American jingoism, uh, see it as almost propagandish, and, uh, and like I said, cheesy, but at the time Stallone himself is, you know, living with, you know, a couple cents to his name, his wife's pregnant. He doesn't know how he's going to get by. And he sees this fight where Muhammad Ali goes up against Chuck Wepner and Wepner, nobody knew who he was. He makes it to the 15th round. He goes the distance and he doesn't get knocked out. And he was like, wow, that's totally amazing. And everything that Stallone was seeing uh, in those days was nihilism. Everything he was seeing was uh, this ironic detachment. And he was like, let's make a sincere portrait of a good guy. Absolutely. Of a good regular yeah. guy. Yeah. And he wrote that script from that place of optimism, from that place of needing optimism. That's a good segue into where I want to go next. My journey into trying to understand Rocky from a philosophical narrative um, kind of got me to the current level of sports philosophy. So just to do a little bit of backing up here, sports have been a part of the human uh, social experiment since the beginning, since the agricultural revolution, and actually even before in cave paintings. They have cave paintings of people like surrounding and watching people wrestling, like signifying that there has been spectator sport for the, for pretty much as long as there have been humans. It, sport doesn't really get codified into a real 
um, cultural narrative until ancient Greece in 756 before the Common Era, where they did the first Olympic Games. In that, uh, each city-state would offer up a slew of athletes to go compete. If there were any wars going on, they would pause all the wars, and they would go to Olympia, which is the city named after Mount Olympics, Mount Olympus, pardon me, and they would play in the Olympic Games, a tradition that just started again in South Korea as we do the modern version of that. Um, the idea that trying to understand is why have all humans pretty universally uh, and culturally and sociologically participated in team athletics? What does that mean? This wasn't actually a subject of investigation until the 70s, right around the time where Rocky came about. A Yale philosopher named Paul Weiss wrote, uh, you know, philosophy in sport. I'm sorry, sports of philosophical inquiry. Got the name all jumbled up That's there. It's so good. I should have written it down before I started this. So in any event, he postulated that there was something more philosophical happening. And now, it might seem ironic with philosophy starting in ancient Greece, but not having a true sports philosopher until the 70s. The reason for that is most philosophers find spectator sport vulgar. Because it's vulgar, in other words, for the common person. Right. You know, not vulgar in the respect that someone said fuck or shit, but vulgar in that it's not an actual expression of true higher uh, education or learning or class. And because of that, it's never been really the subject of inquiry. Well, this guy Weiss was like, there's something really amazing going on here in sport, and someone should start to catalog it, understand it, and dissect it. And we come down to uh, an idea that through athletic competition, athletes can learn truth. And by learning truth, they're learning epistemology. And that truth is pretty simple in sports. The truth is, if I train this way and work my body in this way and study these plays, the truth is I can execute this. But that is still nonetheless a truth. And in doing so, you then get to, from the truth that you learn from the, the sporting activity, you get to the question of ethics in sports, yeah, which is something that is raging today, both in pop culture, both in um, sociology, academia, all over the place. People are asking ethical questions of sports, like how should the NFL protect an NFL player from concussions to what's the role of gender and gender identity in a post-feminist society in sports? And what, is, what are the ethics of a football player taking a knee during the national anthem? Absolutely. Huge questions around ethics. But all of the questions come down to two central philosophical spheres. Um, one is consequen consequentialism, which is the underlining right or wrongness of an action deals with its consequence. So I do something, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, is determined about whether it gives you the consequence that we want. Or uh, dentological, which is rules-based, meaning there is a moral rule that we need to follow in order for something to be right or wrong. So if I understand this correctly, it's sort of an idea of utilitarianism or like ends justifying the means versus a Kantian categorical imperative, right? I'm glad that you brought that up. So utilitarianism is one type 
of consequentialist Great. moral philosophy. And the Kant's categorical imperative is one type of dentological moral philosophy. Great. So those both are parts of those. So you get it perfectly. Cool. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I understood. All right. So just to recap, dentological, rules-based, there is a rule that which governs whether something is right or wrong. That rule is like, you shouldn't take steroids and be in sports. Or there's the consequence Hey, sports are about winning. As long as it helps me win, I'm doing the right thing. Uh So I can take steroids because the consequence is I'm better at sports. Or the same same, uh, thought question is, well, everybody's on steroids. So if I don't take steroids, then it's not a level playing field. So then I have this moral obligation to do it. Right. If I don't take steroids, the consequence is I can't compete. Hence, I must take steroids. Yeah. So I can compete because... Winning is the truth that uh, all sports drives to. So I would submit that Rocky is a, I don't know, intentional, unintentional, but it's the conflict of these two ethical systems in Apollo Creed, who is the consequentialist and Rocky Balboa, who's the dentological. Wow. So Apollo Creed just wants a good show for the people. He knows that that's good for his brand He knows that that's good for uh, the world of boxing. And he knows that the consequence is that reinforces an American narrative. So he goes to Philadelphia. He schedules a big boxing match. It's one that he is confident that he'll win. And the boxer that's supposed to fight him turns out isn't there. So can't compete because he broke a bone. So in his consequentialist morality, he's looking for the best possible outcome. Well, why don't I, in this narrative that I think is good for boxing, good for me, and good for the country, why don't I find a boxer that fits this narrative? That's Rocky Balboa. He doesn't really care about Rocky as a person. He doesn't really care about boxing that much as an institution. He cares about the consequences of what happens when he picks Rocky, the consequence of what happens when he beats Rocky, where Rocky cares more about the rules. Now, to be fair to, you know, comparing Creed and Rocky Balboa, we spend a lot more time with Rocky. Yeah. But one of the most telling scenes is when Rocky is walking home and he sees a friend's younger sister hanging out with the wrong crowd. And he plucks her out and says, no, I'm going to walk you home. And he starts to explain a rule-based moral system where he starts to say, listen, what you do matters. You know, people see what you do, how you do things matters. Do you want to be known as the person that's immoral? No one's going to care whether or not you do become a slutty, immoral woman. They're going to judge you that where there's a rule that young women shouldn't hang out with the wrong guys. And that when she breaks that rule, she's doing something immoral, right? We see this again when Rocky confronts, um, what's his name? Polly. Cause Rocky just doesn't believe that if the powerful should hurt the innocent, Right, just as a rule, we see that when we see Polly abuse Adrian, he he's upset about it. He wants to stop it. Rocky believes in love as like the primary motive and connector of human connection. So Rocky is the dentological versus the consequential, and in this combat, we see at the very end, Rocky got to prove his moral principle, and we get to go along with that journey. And I'd say the movie argues 
for a dentological sports moral system. That's super interesting. I, I love that you're breaking those down as those two characters. Um, and I think there's a lot to explore in terms of where the movie falls down, but also how we relate to those uh, different moral you know, categories. Uh, you know, the movie certainly is not woke in terms of it's, you know, gender politics. Quite or, the opposite. Yeah. It's, it's really in a, a it, it is a product of its time in terms of its relationship to gender and race and class. But you have to also imagine that Rocky growing up in South Philadelphia, uh, the son of, or the grandson of Italian immigrants in a particular socioeconomic status around people of a particular socioeconomic status is brought up in a rules-based moral environment, right? So he He's may Catholic. Not, yeah. First shot of the movie yeah. is Jesus looking down on the fight. It's a super Catholic movie. Um, but Rocky may not agree with the fact that uh, people should judge women for hanging out with, uh, with the wrong guys. He may not agree with the fact that uh, Marie's going to, you know, be considered a whore or, or whatever, uh, he may not feel that that's right, but he knows what people think. And he's like, yeah, unfortunately, those are the rules. Those are the rules. Uh, so, so I think, yeah, that's a, that's a huge component of his character is that he sticks to those guns, whether or not, you know, the, the moral truth of them are absolutely correct. He believes in them. He has faith. Absolutely. And also, when we think of Rocky's relationship to the mobster he works with, yeah, the mobster says, hey, go get money from this guy and break his thumbs. Rocky goes to get the money, but he doesn't break his thumbs. Because in his heart, he knows breaking another man's thumbs so that the loan shark can collect money is wrong. That is a moral line that he doesn't want to cross. Even though he's got to work for a loan shark, because how else is he going to pay the bills? And then the mobster goes, Rocky, you know, you got to do this. If I tell you to break a guy's thumbs and you don't break a guy's thumbs, it makes me look bad. E.g., there's a consequence to you disobeying me. So he's arguing for a consequential form of morality, whereas as a loan shark, I need to have people pay. They need to pay on time. They don't pay on time. I got to physically intimidate them with injury and violence. Rocky doesn't do that. And that's like, our first symbol that, yeah, this guy's down on his luck, but he's good. Yeah, yeah. Is when he doesn't break that guy, those guys' thumbs. When he refuses, he takes his money and he says, I got to take your money, but listen, I'm just not going to break your thumbs because there is a line in the sand morally for this character. Yeah, no, I think that's great. That's great. Yeah, and so I would argue that that's one of the things that makes Rocky, the first movie, so unique is that it does actually have a fleshed out philosophical battle being played out between the protagonist and the antagonist and clearly argues for a dentological moral system. Now, whether or not that is the better moral system by which one should live their life, I will leave that to everyone here listening to judge. I won't tell you whether it's better to be consequentialist or a dentological when it comes to more morality, but I think the movie clearly argues for dentological. This is okay. This is really interesting in terms of this uh, this kind of moral breakdown because one of the things that I wanted to bring up in talking about uh, Rocky and story structure, Rocky as a, a where it stands in modern cinema, uh, I wanted to bring up some comparisons to another uh, boxing movie from nineteen from the nineteen fifties called On the Waterfront. Um, now, if you're not familiar with On the Waterfront, um, I 
we won't go super deep into it, but I think it's worth mentioning because it always shows up in lists of, you know, the greatest movies ever made. It's Marlon Brando. It's one of his best performances. It's made by Elliot Kazan. And it's really a, a very important movie to check out if you haven't seen it. But as I was watching Rocky, as I said, for the first time, I couldn't help, you know, thinking of these comparisons to this other story of a down on his luck bum who lives and works on the docks and, you know, works uh, as a mob enforcer and is thrown into a philosophical uh, debate or um, conflict with himself. Uh, and it is in many ways another sort of American animus. It is another story of an American allegory uh, because at the time that On the Waterfront was made, uh, this is the heart of McCarthyism. And the man who who made this movie, Elliot Kazan, uh, was making this on the back end of having named names uh, of communist sympathizers and communists uh, who were his colleagues in Hollywood. So he made this movie about a character who's dealing with an incredible moral dilemma uh, that is is based in the same... Uh, in the same world. On the one hand, I've got this option where I can continue doing what I'm doing, even if I know I'm doing the wrong thing morally, uh, but I can save you know, my reputation, save my future, save my career. On the other hand, I can sell out some of my friends and basically burn my career and burn my uh, prospects and burn a lot of bridges, but know that I did the right thing. And that's the, uh, th that's the dilemma that the main character, Terry Malloy, faces in uh, On the Waterfront. And it's, it comes across as Kazan's uh, defense of his decision to name names. So fast forward to Rocky, we got this you know, a little more than 20 years later, we're in a, a different uh, political space, but not that different, right? We're in a space where we're still in the heart of the Cold War, and we have a character who is very similar to Terry, who uh, works down by the docks and enforces for a loan shark, and who thinks that he's been totally forgotten and that he's a bum, but he wants to be a contender. And instead of sinking into that conflict, instead of letting those play out side by side in him until he tears himself apart, Rocky actually pulls himself up and sticks to one. So I think in many ways, while you're saying the movie falls down on the side of this dentological system, I think the more important thing is just that it comes down on a side at all. You have to come down on a side in order to be successful, because if you succumb to that inner conflict, you are going to tear yourself apart. And I would say that one of the reasons Rocky as a hero resonates with Philadelphia so well is that Philadelphians, by and large, are going to be more dentological in their morality. If you just go around and just start talking to average Philadelphians, in a very common um, sense, sort of simple way, most people are going to tell you what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And that's taken on faith. Absolutely. Which is a huge part of Rocky and a huge part of that narrative is faith. You know, things that Philadelphia as a city that like really bother it. So in 2005, the Philadelphia Eagles lost the Super Bowl to the Patriots. It came out years later that the Patriots were spying on the Philadelphians in a scandal that became known as Spygate, trying to learn their plays. And so learn what plays they're going to call before they would play them. And that's something that the Patriots did. 
the Patriots in that way were being very consequentialist. All that mattered was winning the Super Bowl. So whatever they do to win the Super Bowl is okay. And all's fair in love and football. And in sports in this country, when we see sports get it wrong, I would also say we might there might be a connection between a consequentialist moral system and the failure of sports when sports puts winning above morality. These things have happened in, in recent years. We can think of Penn State with the Jerry Sandusky scandal. Yeah. You know, where protecting Penn State football was more important than protecting young children from a sexual predator. Right. And then just on a on, on a less serious level, just think about the, you know, the kids that you shared homeroom with or the kids that you were in math class with who were on the football team who maybe got Fs uh, or would have gotten Fs, but the school was too into the football team to fail them. And so they didn't have to work as hard. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think when we look at our sports culture and what it means and how sports can define a people, and that's something that's been happening at least since 776 in the, the before the Common Era. So at least since ancient Greece, athletics has been a tool by which people can define themselves. When we engage and participate in sports, we should ask what kind of narrative we're participating in. I would be remiss in a discussion about Rocky if I didn't go back to Rome. Because in Rome there is a very, very popular form of sport called gladiatorial combat. I could do an entire podcast on gladiatorial combat and what it meant for Rome, but essentially it was pitting two people in a very violent fight. They typically would have a referee. Some would die. Um, Most lived, contrary to popular opinion, and popular uh, sort of pop culture belief of gladiators is that it was always a fight for it to the death. Right. It wasn't always a fight for the death. Fun fact, 90% of gladiators lived at the end of their matches. But still, any athletic competition in which 10% of the people doing it died is fucking brutal and violent. Anyway, gladiatorial combat was a central piece in an aspiring uh, general or politician or statesman who wanted to expand their power. They would fund gladiatorial combat and gladiatorial games as a way to get their name out there, get the love of the people who gave them these great games and start their propaganda base. And in a certain respect, we see this echoed in Rocky through the character Apollo Creed, who's trying to create a PR narrative around the sport where it's not as much about the sport, but it's about what the sport can do for Apollo. And when we see that narrative being played out there, I think there's a direct link to the gladiatorial combat of ancient Rome. And I think we have to ask ourselves this very serious question of, as a sports fan, which I am, diehard, bleed eagle green, you know, love, love professional sports. As a professional uh, sports watcher, what role does that have in my life constructively, destructively, neutral? To what extent is it entertainment? but to what extent is it pacification? And when it starts getting into pacification, when it starts getting into it being a tool to silence my mind rather than a tool to elevate my experience of life, 
is where we, we as, as a sports going population do need to fight back. Yeah. I can give a specific example of that. Please do. Yeah. All right. So it came out, I want to say three or four years ago that the military, um, parades and the military uh, color guards and the flying of jets before major sporting events were actually paid propaganda by the military. Yeah. And what do I mean by that? When you go to a Eagles game and out comes a military color guard with jets flying over and they're singing the national anthem and they've got a like football stadium sized American flag that they're waving and they want everyone to salute their troops. Just understand, that's not a genuine display of patriotism. It's a commercial. It's a commercial paid for by the military that wants help to recruit people to join it. And one of the best places to recruit people is in the arena that brings everyone together, but that also fosters a uh, an intense loyalty, fosters an intense aggression sometimes, and attempts to kind of harness that aggression into uh, into loyalty. Right. So where, what is a better place to look for people to join your military than people who are willing to, you know, fight somebody to support their team a little better. Absolutely. It, it speaks to the tribal nature of sports and it speaks to the nationalist ritual that sports represents. And as we define ourselves as Americans and then as an American man and as an American man, football fan, as an American man football fan, I also am a patriot. These things are true. I am a patriot. It then makes sense. Why not advertise to get people to join the military? Because those things line up with who the military is looking to join. And I don't say this to disparage the American military. Just that story broke and no one gave a shit. Yeah. You know, like nobody cared that we're using... You know, the NFL, the MLB, you know, the uh, NHL, uh, the NBA as recruiting tools for the military. It's like, is that really something that is elevating us as a country? Or is that a, a, is that something that we should be like, you know, like maybe recruit another way? Because what happens and the danger is now that there is a symbolic link between the NFL equaling America which is fucking nonsense. The NFL just equals the NFL. But now that the NFL equals America, when someone does a protest in or around the NFL, they're no longer protesting the NFL or the thing they're protesting. They are now protesting America. They're not disrespecting America. You know? right? <laughs> and that's a debate we're having now as Colin Kaepernick did a, a very peaceful, silent form of protest. A graceful protest, yeah. That turned into a protest against America instead of recognizing that all protest is pro-America innately. Yeah. Because we can pro- like, I'm sorry, I got on a total rant there. But he's in the same place as uh, as we're talking about before. It's uh, You have a platform and you have people that you can speak to who, whose minds you might be able to change. And so he took that opportunity and he stood for something. Uh, and yet that feels for some people like an affront to the people paying money for those giant flags. Yep. And it also, I mean, to be fair, that offended some fans because the NFL and the military have created a mutual financial beneficial, you know, marketing platform to be like, 
football equals America. It's good for the military. It's good for the NFL. So they like that partnership because it makes them both um, benefit. They both benefit because they're both looking at it from a consequentialist frame of reference. Ooh, look at you. Yeah, going full circle. Bringing it full circle. Go, bringing it full, full circle. This is such an interesting conversation to me because I think morally I don't, I, I fall in a little more of a consequentialist uh, philosophy. I, I don't think that I, I fall in one place or another completely. I do think there are, are objective truths and objective moral truths that we can hold to. Um, but for the most part, I view things a little more realistically than taking a lot of stuff on faith. Uh, but there, there's a really interesting context that we're putting this all into um, in terms of sports and how they bring people together and how they can be manip uh, manipulated to sort of pacify the masses. Sure. And I think if you're in power, so, and you've got a whole host of shitty decisions to make, and I don't care if that power is you're a manager of McDonald's or you're the president of a world power, and you have a whole host of crappy decisions to, that you can make, and you've got no good decisions to make, you've got to then kind of be a consequentialist and be like, I've got to pick the one that hurts people the least and helps people the most, knowing that no matter what I choose, someone's going to be hurt. You know, so like, I think consequentialism as a moral philosophy has its place, but I don't know if that place is in professional sports. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a question about Rocky. Do it. Just a, a, a big is this, question. Is this a boomerang? It's, it's not a boomerang, but, uh, but it'll take us in slightly a different direction. It's inspired by the conversation that we're having. I'm really interested in, uh, in Rocky's relationship to race and class. I, I'm saying this from a perspective of not having seen Creed and I'm excited to watch it uh, after having this conversation because from what I've heard about Creed, it is much uh, more aware in the way that it handles race and class. Um, but I'm interested in the idea that Rocky is this, uh, this vision of the white working class who gets plucked out of obscurity to fight the big, powerful black man uh, and this sort of flipping of those roles. And it, it was a little scary watching it from a contemporary perspective and wondering if this story could be used, if this kind of narrative is something that's going on in the heads of people who saw Barack Obama elected to the presidency and then thought, now I don't have a voice. Now I'm the underdog and I'm not being pandered to anymore. Uh, it was a little, uh, a little unnerving to watch that today. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting question. One that I don't know I'm fully qualified to answer. It's something I want to put into the universe because the movie also, it, it wants, it almost addresses it. There's one line where a character, uh, you know, addresses the fact that a white man's about to fight a powerful black man, uh, and then it kind of lets it go. Uh, but I'm so interested in the fact that that that's the the central, uh, you know, relationship of this story. Uh, aside from the romance, is that tension between uh, the poor white immigrant uh, born person and the, you know, the made man. I think Rocky can certainly be interpreted as pro-white and anti-black. I think that's a possible interpretation. And I think that is a shame. I I hope that was not the intention 
to leave that interpretation there. I don't think it was. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's the intention, but... But I think Rocky as a franchise, with Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed becoming best friends, certainly had no intention of going there. Yeah. And in the respect that Rocky is a movie about politics, it's more about sort of the politics of individuals rather than governments. So it doesn't make too many uh, political judgments about writ large politics as we know it in the institutionalized and formal sense. The, you know, the most political that it gets is that, you know, Apollo Creed wants to use the 4th of July as a marketing platform and dress up as Washington on the Delaware. And he dresses up as Washington, you yeah. know, as the hero of America. And he wants to sell himself as the hero of America. Yeah. And I, I think that where I stand on this is that there's nothing wrong with an underdog narrative and an underdog story. And there's nothing inherently racist about it unless it becomes weaponized. And what I mean by that is when someone says, hey, you're the forgotten people, give me power so I can take it away from those. And uh, in the process, if some feelings get hurt, if some families get ruined, if some people get killed, I'm okay with that if you are. And I think we're living in a time of a emergent populist um, push and pull. And that is saying, hey, give me some of your freedom and I'm going to give you these things back for that. And that's the bargain that we're, we're making is let's take away some freedoms from here and I'll give you this back for that. In the case of Donald Trump, that is, hey, give me some of your freedom over having a open society that's pluralistic and I will give you some jobs back by hurting Mexican immigrants. Right. For example, that's a very weaponized form of that. I don't know if Rocky is weaponized in that same way. Well, yeah, and it, it raises some interesting questions about art and intent. Uh, it makes me think about other symbols like the swastika, which is an ancient Eastern symbol uh, that is peaceful and uh, and implies a circle of, of life and existence, and that was co-opted by the Nazis into this symbol of ultimate hatred, uh, and how the, the symbols that we carry that may be beloved to us can be twisted. So uh, I haven't seen a personal example of this, but it, it's, it's the, it would be if someone took the story of Rocky and said, that is how I feel about the Obama presidency. I am Rocky. Obama is the bad guy, and we have to fight back to regain our power, which feels like a, an incredibly false narrative to me. Um, but it raised some interesting questions. That's because it's a false narrative. Yeah, yeah. It raises some really interesting questions about art and how, uh, how it is monumentalized and how yeah. uh, whether art holds truths in its intent or if it can be reinterpreted and repurposed by different audiences. Yeah, it is interesting living in this sort of white backlash in what we now call Trumpism. It is interesting living in that era, living in this time now, and then seeing Rocky and seeing from the prism of where we're at now, it's like, hey, is there a is there a line? Can we trace a line from Rocky to Donald Trump? And you know, and we we probably can. You know, I would wager. You know, Sylvester Stallone seems like a pretty decent dude. 
I met him once. Total other story for another podcast. Seems like a nice guy. I think if if you could tell the current Sylvester Stallone, hey, you might be starting a line that ends us in a really ugly place. He might have wrote Rocky differently. At least I'd like to think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just uh, something that, that buzzes around in my head a little bit. And I'd be interested in revisiting this question um, if we you know, have a chance to take a look at Creed. And if any of our listeners have seen Creed as well and want to share some of their impressions of, uh, of the relationship uh, between the Rocky franchise and race, I would be very, very interested in that. Yeah, you know, and it was not the prism or lens that I put on Rocky because I was more concerned about sports and what sports means. I would be interested in rewatching all of the Rocky movies, A, because I fucking love them all, but B, through the prism and lens of race in our society and see what it says. And I think uh, that would be a really worthwhile enterprise. If anyone's out there has done it too, hit us up, let us know. Yeah, um, I had such a great time kind of exploring the relationship of uh, of Rocky as a movie to the development of sports and to its kind of political narratives. What I have found so interesting about the lens that you watched it from is that you you went back to the development of uh, of sporting as cultural activity, and I think it has some interesting parallels to the development of art. We think about these two gigantic institutions, uh, sports and art making. They are both uh, unique in that they are about pleasure, right? So they engage the masses in something that is not purely functional, that doesn't always relate to serving a particular purpose other than to give pleasure to people. And so we see these develop as distractions or as uh, as entertainment for, uh, for folks um, as humanity is developing and figuring out how to relate to one another better. I think Rocky is such an interesting thing to explore because of where it stands uh, on this precipice of cinema and on this precipice of sporting. Uh, it is this truly and uniquely American story, and it's a story of this sort of cultural phenomenon of the uh, of the underdog, but it's iconic because it's a classic movie that does something totally different. I think uh, that no, no sporting movie after Rocky uh, could have existed without it, right? We can't have Raging Bull without Rocky because you have to have something to rebel against. Uh, and we can't have Miracle or Remember the Titans without Rocky because you have to have something to draw inspiration from, those underdog narratives that really inspire us. And so I think it does something very interesting and straddles this line while reaching back to On the Waterfront, while reaching back to classic cinema and characters and heroes' journeys, it's also looking forward and kind of running up those steps and helping others get there. Yeah, in other words, Rocky, to me, is one of the greatest movies ever made, would be how I would say it. But you say it much more beautifully and nuanced. I loved it, too. You know, I, I didn't expect to love it as much as I did watching it for the first time. And I do find it a really just moving portrait of a character. It really made me feel like a Philadelphian. It really spoke to the kind of, um, the kind of legend that you might want to have for your town. He's sort of our Robin Hood, right? He's our, uh, what were you saying, Paul Bunyan. He's our tall tale. Even though he was created only about 40 years ago, he feels 
like he's been with us for a really long time because he totally exemplifies our Philadelphia spirit and our American spirit. And every time a Philadelphian goes to those steps at the Philadelphia Art Museum and jogs up it for the first time and they turn around and they raise their fists, they feel like the king of the world. And that's what Rocky gave us, a true Philadelphia narrative about a hero who overcomes all obstacles and in typical Philadelphia fashion doesn't quite succeed. <laughs> it just doesn't quite get just, there. You yeah. Know? And and that is a huge part of it. And yet the franchise that Rocky uh, spawned, which is fun and entertaining and, and great. Uh, I haven't seen Creed yet either, putting myself on blast. It never got as good as that first movie in terms of uh, telling something very substantive. But at the end of the day, Rocky is just, I'll tell a quick story. Yeah. Quick story here. I used to manage a Italian cafe at the Italian market. This was years ago. It's one of my first like real jobs. I'm running this restaurant. I'm like a young kid in my twenties, no idea what I'm doing. And Rocky, Rocky Balboa, the sixth installment of the Rocky franchise is filming and Rocky is doing a scene at the Italian market. By Rocky, I mean Sylvester Stallone. And after the scene is done, he just decided that he was going to walk around the Italian market. And that was it. Anyone who wanted to take a picture with him, get an autograph, say hi, you know, shake his hand, he would let anyone come up and do that. And the amount of pride that us South Philadelphians felt when we said, Yo, Sly, you're the best. And he goes, nah, you guys made me. And to see a big, big shot movie star tell like, you know, a guy who, you know, runs a cafe, you know, that I helped make him was just truly amazing. And to see that the idea that he realized that part of his narrative is the Philadelphia narrative is the part that Philadelphia, not the most liked city. It sits between Washington, D.C., the capital of America, and New York City, the economic and cultural capital of America, if not the world. And right in between that is Philadelphia, a city of nearly two million people. That's scrappy and a little dirty. And we're like, we're here, we're proud, we're awesome. And oftentimes is the overlooked American city. It's like, hey, by the way, American democracy, born here, right? Wasn't born in D.C., didn't exist then. Certainly wasn't born in New York. That city was Tory as fuck. If you don't know what Tory <laughs> means, look it up. You know, but they were Tory as motherfuckers. Um, and here was Philadelphia, the place where our country was legitimately born and has become sort of forgotten in the shadow of its, and to be fair, its two greater American cities in D.C. and, and New York. I don't say that easily, but those are the two better cities and Rocky says, you know what? They might be the better cities, but Philadelphians, we will always go the fucking distance. And we'll go the distance, and we, we made Rocky possible on faith. I just want to bring it back uh, by saying that is the, the core pillar of what this movie represents, where it lies in Philadelphia history, where it lies in cinematic history, where it lies in sports history. And I just want to say, faith is what you know, got Nick Foles to do the Philly special. 
Faith is what made Doug Peterson go for it on fourth and goal. Uh, you know, faith is what won the Eagles the Super Bowl this past weekend, and faith is what gets us by day to day and what makes us believe that we can do it even if success doesn't look as conventional as we thought. Amen to that. Laurel, how can people reach us? I would love, love to hear from you. I know Derek would as well. Any of our listeners who want to reach out and share any thoughts they had on Rocky or give us some insight into Creed before we jump into that, uh, please hit us up at Twitter. We're at The Midnight Myth, uh, or you can visit us on Facebook. You can search The Midnight Myth Podcast on there. Uh, We also have a contact form on the website. It's www.midnightmyth.com. And we're over on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And yeah, we would love to hear anything you have to say. If you have a moment and you've enjoyed what you hear, please head over to Apple uh, Podcasts and hit five stars on the rating or leave us a review. Anything helps. It really helps us get out there so people can find the podcast. And if anybody's looking for recommendations, just make sure you throw our hat in the ring because we know we have a lot of people to compete with. And I know I usually say my send off to be kind, but I think I'm going to sing a song if you'll help me. It goes like this. Fly, eagles, fly on the road to victory. Fight, fight, fight. Fly, eagles, fly. Score a touchdown. One, two, one, two, three. Hit them low, hit them high. And watch our eagles fly. Fly, eagles, fly on the road to victory. E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles! Be kind. Be kind. Be kind.